Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We were in the middle of that fun little passage in the beginning of John chapter 8. And I explained to you the whole background and all of the controversies you might have heard about this passage. But before we continue to cover um, that section, does anybody have any questions about what we said last week and um, how you know the tradition kind of preserves this for us, although it's not necessarily in the original manuscripts that, that we have in the Gospel of St. John, and how that all fits together in our life and so on. Any questions, comments? Okay. All right, so this is one of the most beautiful passages. Again, it's from John seven fifty three to 8, 11. And uh, we were just about halfway last week. All right, so let's just read that whole section all together, and then we'll probably start around verse 7 in chapter 8. But let's read from 7.53 and then down to 8.11, just to look at this in context, all right? And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst of, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay, <clears throat> so any questions about the first half of that? The first couple of verses? All right. So we'll start with verse 7, okay? John 8, verse 7, okay? So obviously they're still nagging him, right? And you, you'll notice that it, it's, it's clear that he even, like, brushes them off intentionally. Like, if, if you notice that last remark in verse 6, like, that he wrote on the ground as though he did not hear, right? Like clearly he heard them, but he's writing as if he didn't hear them, kind of like brushing them off, right? And we spoke about that, but 
he stands up, right? And then he responds. Okay, and that's what we see here in verse 7. Right? They continue to ask him, they're nagging him, they're nagging him, and he's kind of like brushing them off. And then he stands up and he responds. What does he say? Does he finally give them a straight answer? No. Right? Because they're asking him whether they should stone her or not. Right? Caught her in the act. Red-handed. Caught her with a hand in the cookie jar. Okay? You tell us what to do. And he doesn't say, stone her, don't stone her. He says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Okay? So, let's try to dissect that. First he says, he who is without sin. What does that mean to be without sin? Is he referring to a specific sin, like adultery, especially in this case, because obviously the controversy is about uh, the sin of adultery, right? Right, so in general, right, he's telling them, he who is without sin to imply anyone who has not missed the mark. Because remember, sin is missing the mark, right? Amartiyas. So, he who is without sin is he who has not missed the mark. He who has never deviated from his target, right? So, anyone that strayed from the path, right? If you just missed that mark, you fall in that group, right? Anyone who's not perfect, <laughs> okay? Who's not necessarily talking about someone who hasn't fallen into adultery, go ahead and stone her or throw the first stone. Okay? St. Augustine says, Our Lord in his answer both maintained his justice without leaving out gentleness. They laid the snare for him, but they were the ones who were caught in it because they didn't believe in the one who could pull them out of the net. Right? So he gave them a very wise answer. Because he didn't say what she did was fine, which is what they were hoping to get out of him in order to like corner him, given how they experienced his love and mercy and compassion and stuff, right? So they wanted to corner him if he were to forgive her and to say, you know, this is fine, just forgive, right? But he didn't say that. He just said, let him who is without sin throw a stone at her first, right? But he still was gentle, right? He still didn't condemn her. So you see, like, he approaches with wisdom, like, preserves both justice and, and gentleness in that way, right? So instead of trying to corner him, who's now cornered? It's them, right? The, the tables have turned, okay? And so he clearly sets the standard for justice, right? He says there's no excuse for the sin, right? Doesn't excuse it. But who's the one who can judge? The one without sin. The one without sin. So now he's directing their attention to the real judge. Okay? And so a little later, St. Augustine says, this is the voice of justice. Let the sinner be punished, but not by sinners. Let the law be carried out, 
but not by transgressors of the law. You see, so he's still preserving the law, right? Because Christ didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law, right? So there's still justice, right? But he's telling them they're not the ones to implement it, okay? You're not God, <laughs> you're not the judge, okay? Leave that to the real judge, which is Christ, okay? Any comments or questions about that? Okay, now, what's the significance of throwing the first stone? Right? That's the second part of that statement. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Which is saying, you throw the first stone, right? You go first. What's the significance about that? The most worthy? Okay. It definitely highlights that person in, in the sense of him like coming forward. But it's not necessarily that the person is most worthy. But traditionally it would be the person who makes the accusation against the one on trial. Right? So he's saying, okay, whoever wants to condemn her, right, throw the first stone. Because the one who throws the first stone assumes the responsibility of that condemnation, right? And it was always understood that the one who throws the first stone is willing to accept the consequences of falsely accusing someone. Like it was understood that their blood would be on their head, right? So, so it, it was a big deal to throw the first stone. Right, because you're saying, you know what, their blood's on my head. I, I'm confident that this person is a criminal, he did this wrong, and I am going to lead the whole council in implementing justice. Right? So that's what it means to throw the first stone. Right? Now, clearly, no one is willing to do that. Right? Like, they're, they're all convicted by that because they know none of them are without sin and none of them are willing to admit that, that they're without sin. So they're still silent. Like nobody even responds to him, right? Now, right after that, what does he do? And again, he what? Look at verse 8. Stoop down and and wrote on a, okay, didn't he just stoop down and write on the ground a little bit earlier? Okay, so like it happens another time, like it happens again. So why does he go down to the ground twice, stoops down, writes, kind of seems strange. He stood up, said one thing, <laughs> went back down, wrote another thing. But you remember what I told you last week. Like the obscurity about the, what he wrote is, you know, intentional. Now it gives us room to meditate, right? The scriptures always leave us with room to l apply that meaning to ourselves. So you can think about this in a spiritual way. Like why it goes down, you know, writes something, stands up, 
tells them the statement, right? Goes down, writes again. So, why, why twice? Okay, he, so y- you see that there's definitely this focus on his humility, right? He's not just going down once, goes down again, right? And this is precisely what convicts them. Because a, a little later, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, right? But there's an interesting little parallel that we can draw in both situations. When he goes down and writes on the ground the first time and then stands up and then you know, tells them, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. Then he writes down on the ground again. So Craig Keener says, some suggest as a Roman judge would write his sentence before reading it aloud, Jesus writes the acquittal. Okay, the acquittal is basically like the exoneration. Like you're going to excuse someone. He writes the acquittal. That was the, the first time going down. Okay? This suggestion has much support to it because ancients could easily read the text with this assumption. Okay, they were very familiar with what the, the Roman judge would do. So he would write down his verdict before pronouncing it out loud. Right? So whenever they read this passage, this was you know, very familiar to them, right? It may not explain why he continued to write on the ground a second time in verse 8, unless he's now writing guilty as a verdict for the accusers. Okay, so there's like an interesting parallel here, right? So the first writing is to exonerate the woman, and the second writing is to convict the accusers. Right, so there's this beautiful contrast where the first one, he excuses her, right? He writes the acquittal. Then he stands up, he addresses the people. Let him who is without sin cast a stone at her first, right? And then he goes down and writes the accusation, which is probably their sins or their names, right? So that was to, to convict them, right? And this is what fathers like St. Jerome suggests that, that he wrote on the ground as well, that he wrote their sins, okay? Bede the scholar finds a couple of lessons that we can take away from this too. So, first, is that when he looked down after telling them, let him who is without sin cast the stone at her first, is that he did this to give them an opportunity to leave without any shame or embarrassment. Right, because that's a pretty convicting message. Right? Like he's telling them, like, who, who presumes they're perfect? Right? And so the, he knows that's going to convict them. So out of his love and his compassion, like he doesn't even bear to look at them in the eye. He just like stoops down again so that you can just walk away without any shame or embarrassment. Right? So it's kind of like showing them a little bit of grace right there. Right? Um, it's not like staring them down so they could leave and, and make them feel a little bit more shame. Right? And the second lesson is that this is just to, to emphasize his humility before implementing any sort of judgment. He says, the fact that both before and after 
he gave his opinion, he bent and wrote on the ground, admonishes us that both before we rebuke a sinning neighbor and after we have rendered to him the ministry of due correction, we should subject, we should subject ourselves to a suitably humble examination. When we look at some other sinner, we immediately bend down, that is, we humbly observe how we would be cast on by our frail condition if divine benevolence didn't keep us from falling. Right? So it's pretty much like what, what mom was alluding to a little bit earlier, right? That there's this emphasis on the humility of Christ as he approaches the situation, even though he's, he's basically putting them in their place, right? But he does that with this beautiful humility, right? Any comments or questions about that? Okay, so what did all of this do to them? We just said, what did it do to them? Okay, they had a change of heart, or at least it convicted them, right? Hopefully they had a change of heart, but they definitely felt convicted by it, right? Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, right? But what is it exactly that convicted them? Think about it. It's right there in that very same sentence. Then those who what? Who heard it being convicted by... So it was by hearing, right? They heard his words. And that penetrated their hearts. That's what convicted these people. Right? And again, because he approached this with like, such a gentle way, he wasn't harsh... He didn't say, who the heck do you think you are? Like, which one of you is perfect? He just said, whoever is without sin, cast a stone at her first. Right? And then that kind of left them in, in, in a place of self-examination. So he prompted them to think. Right? And it probed what their what? Their conscience. Those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. So his words penetrated their conscience. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do in, in ministry, in service. By appealing to people's conscience. Not just by attacking them or just arguing or proving our point. But by appealing to their conscience. That's everything. So... It was his response that drew them to consider th their own life. Like this sort of conviction probably prompted them to, to withdraw a little. Because he's asking who's without sin. So what are they thinking about? Whether they have any sins. Right? So it prompted this self-examination to look down deep within their hearts. And they probably recognized that they're all sinful and so they recognized their sinfulness, and, and that's what got the job done. St. Isaac the Syrian says, He who senses his sins is greater than he who raises the dead with his prayer. He who is made worthy to see himself is greater than he who is made worthy to see angels. There's nothing more beneficial than that. 
right? And then that's what the scriptures do for us. They prompt us to, to look in a mirror, to look deep within our soul, to recognize the condition of our heart, right? And, and the fathers tell us to recognize that is greater than the ability to raise the dead by our prayers. That's a big deal, right? Okay, any comments, questions? All right, so they left one by one, right? What was the order? Kind of just randomly everybody walked out one by one, or what was the order in walking out? From the <laughs> eldest to the youngest, right? Why? Think about how a conviction works. Like, who probably felt the greatest weight of this conviction? The oldest scribes. Why? Because they're responsible for teaching all of the students. Right? There's a big burden in that. Right? Whenever your disciples or your students stumble, you sense the weight of that. Right? Like, you, you celebrate whenever they're on the right track, and you're crushed whenever they stray. Right? So, the, the greatest burden was always on the teacher. And I think this is why they felt more convicted and they stepped out before anyone else. Right? And that's why we have to consider that burden whenever we assume any position of leadership or any time we function as teachers, right? James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Okay, so we know that the weight of that judgment is a heavy burden. So we don't just easily assume that position because it's a big responsibility. Right? So they sensed that and that's why they all walked out before anyone else. All right. Now, after Christ addressed the scribes, she probably sensed the weight of his words as well. Right. So, what did those words do for her? Like when he told them, "He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first." Do you think that reassured her, or what exactly? Okay, so it's definitely the sense of like, okay, you're not alone, right? Okay. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Right. Because they all just take us away from God. Right? So that's essentially what he's highlighting, that no one is perfect. Everybody has strayed off that path. Right? Now, it's interesting, too, that, you know, it's not like he excused 
her behavior. All he said is, he was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. So I, I would presume she still felt a little guilty. Just now she can take a, a, a breath of relief that no one's going to stone her, right? But now she's actually in the presence of a unique individual. Because if you interpret this from what Christ said, let him who is without sin among you throw a stone at her first. So who is she left with? Someone who is without sin. Someone who has the authority to throw the stone at her first. So I, I would assume like there's this sense of <clears throat> conviction in her heart too. And I think that's the beauty of this whole scene. Everyone's convicted, <laughs> right? Everybody comes face to face with reality. Like, and that's the beauty of the scene. She's left with the only one who has the authority to accuse her, right? But instead of an accusation, she finds mercy. Because he says, where are your accusers? Have they all left? And she's like, yeah, they're gone. No one here. He says, I don't accuse you either. Right? I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Right? So she was left with the one who has the authority to condemn her, but instead, he does the exact opposite. Like, I'm the only one who can stone you. I'm the only one who can accuse you. But, ironically, I'm the only one showing mercy. And that's the beauty of Christ. Okay, so <clears throat> there's a lot to say about being left alone with Christ. That, like to her, that was the pinnacle of her salvation. It was like this whole process until she was finally saved culminated in this moment when she was alone with Christ. Like whenever she found grace, she came face to face with mercy. Right? And notice her posture too. Even though it's not really any different from the beginning of the whole story. Because she was just set in the midst of them. But what do we find in the end of verse 9? Jesus was left alone and the woman what? Standing in the midst. Right? So you could notice this beautiful scene. Right? That she's, she's up on her own two feet. Right? It's like he elevated her, he supported her, he empowered her. Right? I think that's beautiful. All right, so, <clears throat> even though he didn't condemn her, he leaves her with a very important message. Right? He says, I do not condemn you, right? neither do I condemn you. Go and what? And sin no more. Right? And so, here's like the weight of mercy and forgiveness. That you're given a, a, a fresh new start. Right? And so, it's like after you get a car wash, how do you treat your car? Like, you treat it carefully, right? And if you haven't washed your car for like a few months, you're like, whatever. <laughs> I drive through all the dust in the world, it's already dirty. I don't care. <laughs> like the weight of 
maintenance goes right out the window. Right? You don't even care about really preserving it. But once you get a car wash, you're like, somebody leans up on your car like, whoa, dude, oh, oh, watch out. <laughs> like, I just washed it. <laughs> Careful. Right? And so now he's sending her away with that weight. You've just received mercy. You received forgiveness. You received salvation. Go and preserve it. Sin no more. And the focus is not just to avoid sin. When he says go and sin no more, he says don't miss the mark. So stay on track. Stay on the mark. And that mark is who? It's Christ. Right? Focus on the target. Right? And so... <clears throat> He protects her from these two extremes, and we often fall into that, but St. Augustine talks about the danger of hope and despair. And I think hope is probably the wrong word. It's probably better to consider it the danger of presumption and despair, right? where one side is to say, well, God is good, merciful, kind. God is uh, compassionate and he'll forgive any sin that I commit. So, YOLO. <laughs> like, let's go do whatever we want. Right? And then the other side is, well, God is just. Right? He is the true judge. And the consequences of sins are death. And so, it's you know, easy to fall into despair when we think of the extent of our sinfulness. Right? And so these are the two extremes we always want to avoid. Right? The Christian path is to recognize our sinfulness and God's love at the very same time. Right? They're, they're inseparable. They're both like two components of the same reality. That I am a sinner, but God saved me. And... I have hope in him, right? So never to take his love and his mercy for granted, like we often do, or never to think about our self as unredeemable, okay? So St. Augustine says, the Lord is gentle, the Lord is long-suffering, the Lord is full of mercy, but the Lord is also just, the Lord is also righteous, Right? So that's what we all, always have to keep in mind. Yes, he's merciful, but he's also the judge. Right? And um, there's this beautiful icon, if you've ever seen it, where there are like two sides of Christ's face, or you see his eyes are a little bit different. You guys ever seen that? Some of you are shaking your head yes, right? You know? I, I don't know what it's called either, but in any case, you notice how one is like compassionate and one is firm, like, like a judge, right? And so we have to think about that all the time, right? And that keeps us in the right track, right? Any comments or questions about that? I think that's probably what we fall into more than the despair. Um, but everyone's different. People fall into either extreme. Um, but I would say more of us just walk with that um, like loose carelessness because we know God is merciful. 
Um, although, yes, some people fall into that despair, but I, I'm often more tempted to live carelessly than I am to live in despair. Right? Because I, I'm always conscious of God's love and mercy and so on. Hmm. Exactly. It is. Like we're one, recognized God's love and compassion and kept his hope alive because of that. Where one was like, I, I'm, I'm worthless. God can never love me and forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm too far gone. That's the perfect contrast. Any comments, questions? All right. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's all stand to pray. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.